Let's go straight away to the Sheffield Celebration Singers and the Salvation Army Band for Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. Sheffield Celebration Choir and Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven.
That was the Morriston Orpheus Choir with a song appropriate for these days, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. Now let's go over to David, who'll tell us what Malcolm Gite has for us today. Malcolm Gite has written a series of poems based on some of George Herbert's poetic themes. This week we hear Malcolm reading A Kind of Tune, and it's followed by the choir boys singing Tears in Heaven. Here is another sonnet responding to George Herbert uh, and his poem Prayer. This sonnet is a response uh, to his line that prayer is a kind of tune that all things hear and fear. A kind of tune, a music everywhere and nowhere, love's long, lovely undersong, a trace in time, a grace note in the air, born to us from the place where we belong, on every passing breeze and in the breath of every creature. All things hear and fear, for faintly through our fall we too may hear the strong song of the sun that undoes death. And one day we will hear it unimpaired, the joy of all the sorrowful, the song of all the saints who cry how long, the hidden hope of all who have despaired. He sang it to his mother in the womb, and now it echoes from his empty tomb. was followed by the choir boys singing Eric Clapton's Tears in Heaven. Eric Clapton wrote that song following the death of his four-year-old son who fell more than 50 stories from a skyscraper in New York. From the song title, you might think that Eric thought there were tears in heaven, but in the body of the song he wrote, Beyond the door there's peace, I'm sure, and I know there'll be no more tears in heaven. I guess the tears are here on earth. Here's another song about heaven, though. It's Christine Getty with There Is a Higher Throne. Has 
Higher Throne, that was sung by Christine Getty. Now it's over to David to introduce our next piece. Some children may be wondering what to do with the Christmas money they received and they might think of buying a good book. Mariella Frostrup talks to David Williams about his inspiration for writing children's stories. 
Since David Williams, the comedian and actor, first put pen to paper in 2008 with his taboo-busting The Boy in the Dress, he's become a publishing sensation to rival his hero Roald Dahl. Since then, he's published 11 books and sold a staggering 12.5 million copies. Beloved of children and of parents desperate to get their kids reading, his irreverent humour and ability to reflect social concerns and difficult lives in madcap entertainments has made him the most successful children's writer of the day. Nowadays, a father himself, Bad Dad, his latest number one bestseller, is another caper set in a poverty-stricken, broken home where a young boy struggles to keep his dad on the straight and narrow. Williams began our wide-ranging interview by filling me in on the inspiration behind his latest literary escapade. I was intrigued with the idea of a child whose parent goes to prison. I always thought that was uh, never happened to me. Um... It actually happened to Matt Lucas when he was a child um, with his father. But um, So did you talk to him about it? Yes, we talked about it, but, I mean, not really in the context of this book. But obviously it's a, it's a very, I imagine it is always a very traumatic thing, isn't it, when you're, if, if your parent is incarcerated and the, the idea of, you know, only visiting on these certain days and how obsessing that would be anyway. So I thought, I thought that was an interesting predicament, which is, you know, you're separated from your parent and your parent's in, in prison. And then I thought, I also want to do an adventure story about breaking out of prison for one night. And in this case, in the story, it's Frank breaks his father out of prison so they can put the money back that his father's taken part in uh, stealing from a bank so that he can get his dad ultimately out of prison. It's a kind of moral tale. I mean, the book is called Bad Dad. Um, the reader can decide whether they think Gilbert, who's the father, is a bad dad or not. I mean, he does a bad thing, but I think he's a good man. Is that how each of them start, with one major event that then brings the rest of the action into play? Well, I read Stephen King's brilliant book on writing. I don't know if you've ever read it, but obviously... I think Steve, I ought to, if it's worked for you. Stephen, <laughs> Stephen King, uh, you know, obviously is a master storyteller. But he, he said an interesting thing. He thinks that a, a, really, a good idea for a book is really two ideas bashing against each other. Um, and I think that's true to some extent in my books like Gangster Granny. I mean, I always think a book about a granny wouldn't be that interesting. A book about uh, a gangster might not be that interesting. But put those two things together and it makes something interesting. So, so for me, I suppose I had two ideas here. In Grandpa's Great Escape, I wanted to write a book about a grandparent with Alzheimer's and I also wanted to do a book which was about an escape from an old people's home in a sort of you know prisoner of war style because I grew up watching things like The Great Escape so again it's sort of it's for me it's trying to find a balance between something quite serious and something that's also going to be fun for kids to read because obviously I don't want to write I mean not I mean, other writers might want to do it, but I don't think it's my, my place to write a really bleak book about a child whose father goes to prison. I'd rather write a fun book, which is also an adventure story, but also has sad and poignant elements. You said that one of the joys of, of writing your books is that they give you room to explore emotion fully, and the relationship between Frank and his dad in this book is incredibly movingly written. I know in the past you've said that your relationship with your father was perhaps unrequited would be a, a way of describing it, and you never felt that you really had his attention and love. And I wondered if that's why your boys are always performing heroic feats that bring them closer to their fathers. Uh, that may be right. It's interesting, isn't it? Because some of these things you consciously do and some of these things you subconsciously do, 
from the boy in the dress um, is about a boy who you know goes to school dressed as a uh, as a girl, and it's his father's approval that that matters the most to him. And so, yes, I think it is complex between fathers and sons, and particularly, and I'm 46, so my dad, if he was still alive, would be now in his 80s. And, yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't, very, uh, he wasn't very warm towards me. But that's not to say he didn't love me, but he just was that generation where you didn't really, you didn't really show it. Um, and so, I mean, I'm a parent now, and so, you know, I... I I do consider that, and I do think... I can't remember my dad ever saying, I love you to me. I say it to my son about 100 times a day. Well, I'm also then intrigued about the absent mums, because as a mother myself, I can't help but notice that we're banished in all kinds of ways, and particularly heartless in this book, in that Mother Rita runs off with the local gangster and doesn't seem to throw a backward glance to um, husband or son. So why? Why are you punishing these mothers? Why are you trying to imagine life without them in every single one of your books? I think Barb too. A boy's best friend is his mother. Who said that? Norman Bates. Thank you. In Psycho. Um, <laughs> I am very close to my mother. The thing is, when you're writing a book, you need there to be some discord. So for me, I suppose it's, it's trying to imagine a world where, where my mum wasn't there because I think I'd be a lot more lost if my mum wasn't around, I hadn't been around in my childhood. And so I think it's just freeing up the child to have an adventure. I'm not actually... I don't have any sort of problem with mums. I just suppose I think if your mum wasn't around, you know, life would be more problematic. I'm David Williams, was talking to Mariella Forstrup. Music, and we've had part of Tears in Heaven, and we've also had There is a Higher Throne. Here's another song about heaven... This time it's Joe Stafford and Gordon McRae with Beyond the Sunset.
Stuart Stafford and Gordon McRae with Beyond the Sunset. And it's casting crowns this time. It's sometimes called Glorious Day or One Day When Heaven. One day when heaven was filled with his praises One day when sin was as black as could be Jesus came forth to be born of a virgin, dwelt among men, my example is he. The word became flesh, the light shined among us, his glory
with One Day When Heaven Was Filled With His Glory. Sometimes the song is known as Glorious Day. Larry Gentis and his wife Judy live in Kirk Michael and go to Bitlochry Baptist Church. Larry and Judy now act out the story of the widow paying off her debts with the help of Elijah. What? He's dead? What am I going to do now? How am I going to raise Joshua and David? It's not their fault their father has died. I had no idea that this was going to happen. Oh my God, my God! Please help, Lord. Please! For the first time in my life, I didn't know what to do. Who could have imagined what you have to think about? The children, the rent, the taxes. I knew my husband had not settled things. We had thought we had enough time. Death did not come when I expected it. My husband had faithfully served God all his life. Now he was gone and I had nothing but debts. And my two children. How on earth were we going to manage? It wasn't so bad at the beginning as everybody poured out their hearts and sympathy for me and my two children. But then reality hit. We had no income and the creditors were hounding me, and I had no way to pay them back. They suggested, <laughs> they demanded that I sell my children into slavery to get them their money. Yes, you heard right. I was going to lose my children, and they were going to be slaves all their days. What kind of a life was that? I have one more idea, and if it doesn't work, that's the end of the road for me and my children. There's this prophet called Elijah, and he apparently has done some fairly amazing things which we could only say are miraculous. He was my husband's mentor and the leader of the prophets of Israel. If he can't help, no one can. I have to try. Rabbi, you know that my husband served God all his life and has followed and supported you in your ministry. I've come to tell you, he's dead. Oh, I'm really so sorry for you. Well, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? It's as you see, Rabbi, this house is empty. The only thing we have is that one jar standing in the corner. It's not much. It's oil. That's all we have. Okay, I'm going to tell you what I want you to do, and even if it seems a bit crazy... Go, borrow containers for yourself from all your neighbors. Make sure they're empty and don't just get a few. Get as many as you can. Then go into your house, shut the door behind you and your sons, and pour out the oil you have in all these containers. Set aside the full ones. Be careful to follow my instructions to the letter. Close your door. Get as many containers as you can. Have you understood? Rabbi. I have no idea how this is going to help our situation, but I will do exactly as you have said. 
All right, children, in we go. It seems really weird. I'm glad he said shut the doors. I really don't want the neighbors to see me doing this. They'll have me locked up. Well, that's one filled. Here's a second one. Oh, I, I don't understand it. There's still more. David, bring me another jar. Quickly, quickly, please. Okay, that, that one's full as well. This is absolutely crazy, but look, there's, there's, there's still more. Joshua, bring me another vessel. I can't believe this. It just keeps coming and coming. And now I'm on my last vessel. That's done it. I've got more oil than I know what to do with. Rabbi, I cannot believe this. I did exactly as you said. And now I have all this oil. What, what do you want me to do now? Okay, this is what you're going to do. Go, sell all the oil, pay your debt, and you and your sons can live on what's left after you pay your debt. It's been two months since that happened. It's hard to believe that in just such a short time, my children and I had nothing except slavery and destitution for our future. God was merciful to us, and the only regret that I have is maybe I should have got more vessels? In the kingdom, the more room you have for a blessing, the more blessing you'll get. So how many vessels do you have for God's blessing? This story is found in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. Lonnie and Judy Dent, dentist there. And you can read about that in the Old Testament of the Bible in the first book of Kings, chapter 17, starting at verse 7. Now, coming up, we'll be hearing about a painting, an icon of the Virgin Mary. But before we do that, here is a contemporary Roman Catholic song. It's Bernadette Farrell with the Brownstead Choir with Christ Be Our Light.
Bernadette Farrell there and Frank Brownstead Choir with Christ Be Our Light. And now we we'll go back to David one more time. At Christmas time, the role of Mary as the mother of Jesus is very much at the forefront of the minds of Christians. Ernie Ray talks to Claire Barry about what she's trying to depict when she paints an icon of Mary. Ernie also includes the Coptic Orthodox Archbishop of London, Archbishop Angelos, and also Mona Siddiqui, Professor of Islamic Studies at Edinburgh University, in the discussion. Claire Louise Barry is a Catholic and an icon painter. I asked her what she thinks about when she paints an icon of the Virgin Mary. By looking at Mary's face, kind of emerging from this blank panel, it's like I get to meet her face to face and just ponder on who she is and also receive something back, knowing that she is there and she is looking back at me and praying for me. Iconography has got very established traditions. It's done in a certain way. And I'm wondering how much freedom you have when you begin to paint an icon. So painting icons is very different from what you traditionally consider kind of fine art. It's not about expressing oneself. So it's more about following traditions that have been established for centuries or millennia and these traditions that, that we know from experience communicate something of the truth and the beauty of God and of the saints. So if I examined your work over a long period, would I be able to recognise an icon as a Claire Barry icon? I think certainly. I think it's quite extraordinary how different iconographers, even if they're using the same prototypes or even if they are basing their icons on a pre-existing one, there's always a sort of flavour or a character of the individual that comes out. For example, I'm friends with a great iconographer in Texas called Baker Galloway, and he's huge. He's about six foot five. He's very, very robust. And his icons also are very robust and very strong. So, so how are your lines? How do your lines reflect your personality? I think my icons tend to be more peaceful and calm. So the expressions tend to be more serene. Has your understanding of the Virgin Mary changed since you began painting her? It certainly has, although I think it has more to do with my personal circumstances. So when I first started painting icons at the start of my course, I was living in a a lay Benedictine community doing lots of mission work. And by the end of my course I was married and I now have a son and so my sort of affinity and my relationship with her has got much deeper and I find myself praying to her more now that I am a wife and a mother than at the start of my painting journey. So what are the qualities of the Virgin Mary which you're trying to bring out when you paint her icon? Well, it's quite interesting that in the Gospels, there's not a huge amount of information about her personal character. And I've read, I think it was Carol Houselander said that it was perhaps this way so that we don't fall into thinking that only one sort of person is able to bear Christ into the world. I think for me, I'm currently 
working on an icon of Mary. It's quite a small icon, it's just of her face. And in this icon, she's facing very nearly straight on. And this is really unusual. Like normally, Mary is depicted at an angle, it kind of expresses her humility and her orientation towards Christ. But this one, she's facing almost straight on. And I, and I like this because to me, that speaks of her courage. And I think for me, I like to reflect on the moment of the Annunciation when Gabriel told her that she was to bear a son and just the incredible courage that she had to say yes and how everything in creation like, hinged on that moment of her welcoming God into herself. That was Claire Louise Barry. And Archbishop, here's a Roman Catholic painting icons. Um, how did you react to that? I loved it. I think icons um, are a wonderful part of our tradition to the extent that our own iconographers will refer to it as writing an icon because an icon bears so much theology and teaching. And I do think within our icons, for instance, of St. Mary, she'll always be wearing blue because we refer to her as the second heaven, the dwelling place of God. She's always depicted with Christ as the Theotokos, but at various stages of his life. She's an inspirational character, not only for women, but also for men. But it's good to have such a pivotal, central character as a woman as well, to be a role model and an example to young and older women in their lives. Mona, how did you react to it? Because Islam doesn't like figurative art within a context of worship, and, and I guess there aren't any icons or figures of Mary within Islam. As I was listening to her, it reminded me of um, a holiday I had in Malta several years ago over the Christmas period. And in almost every window, there was a Madonna figurine, either porcelain or plastic figure of Mary, adoringly holding the baby Jesus. And then I later realised that that Mary is the co-patroness of the island, that uh, the Maltese were devoted to the Assumption of the Virgin. And seeing these small or large statues in almost every window seemed really strange to me, almost disturbing. But I came to realise that for so many of the ordinary home dwellers here, that figurine probably brought so much comfort to the life of the devotee. And so although iconography um, has kind of faded in Islamic piety, the sense of reading Surah Maryam as a way of protecting your home still continues to this day. Ernie Ray and friends there, and Ernie was talking to icon painter Claire Louise Barry. We had the first few bars of our next song at the end of last week's Heart and Soul, so here in its entirety, as they say, sung by Gaither's homecoming friends, it's I Know Who Holds Tomorrow. I don't worry 
tomorrow and that was uh, with Gaither's Homecoming Friends and that's us once again so thank you for listening our thanks too to Ernie Ray Claire Louise Barry Larry and Judy Gentis Mariella Forstrup David Williams and Malcolm Geit for their contributions this morning and to Sam Ross for pulling it all together for us Eddie Rose is on after news at 9, Colin Phillips at 11, Dave Barry with the service at 1, Anne-Marie's at 2, Mike Marwick at 5, Ian Moyes at 7 and Chris Stanton at 9, all here on Heartland FM. Meantime, David Wilkie and I, I'm Howard Simpson, we wish you a good day, a good week and God's blessing and we leave you with Isla Grant and He Walks Beside Me. <laughs> Thank you.